in our series called All In. We're in our third week of the series today, and uh, we started a couple weeks ago talking about the cost, counting the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, and then last week I talked about our natural habitat, that actually being all in on Jesus is actually what we're designed for, and that it's not about putting us in bondage, but it's actually about freedom in our life. And uh, so today I would like to talk to you about the hindrances of being all in in our life. You know, Jesus is worth it to be all in. He's worth it. He does deserve it. He's the only one trustworthy enough to give us, for us to give him everything. And not only that, we're better for it because it's what we were created to do. And, uh, but we also know that it's not easy to be all in on Jesus. I mean, let's just be honest, right? It's not easy because we're human beings and we're selfish and we have things we want too. And so it's not something that's easy. In fact, the Bible never promises us that it's going to be easy. It actually promises us that it's going to be difficult. Jesus compares it to taking up your cross and following him. That's not an easy thing to do, right? So it's going to be challenging for us. And so we have to recognize and understand the things that can get in our way and can keep us from being all in on him. Because I believe as Christians, if you're a Christian in this place or a Christian watching online, chances are you do want to be completely committed and submitted to Jesus. But we have those things that continually get in our way and hinder us from doing it. So we're gonna talk about that today. And my text verse is out of Galatians 5. And I know we keep telling you we're gonna have you stand one more time, but this really is the last time until I'm done, I promise. So if you'll stand with me one more time, we'd just like to stand here in honor of reading God's word out of Galatians 5. And this is the Apostle Paul, definitely one of my favorite books of the Bible, top three for sure, because it is the manifesto of the freedom that we are designed to live in. And Paul's writing this letter to the church in Galatia, and he's actually rebuking them because these guys had got saved, but they were starting to, they were starting to go back into some of the religious duties that, uh, that Jews were putting on them and making them combine with their faith in Christ. So Paul's right to rebuke them. And he actually says here in verse five, or verse seven, excuse me, he says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you or resisted you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. Can you say amen to that? God's not the one trying to keep us from living the life he's called us to live. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. That is a very short but a very powerful statement that Paul makes here. Some, some versions it's called leaven instead of yeast. But the title of my message today is simply A Little Yeast. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are so good. You really are worthy of it all. We thank you that we have this great opportunity to come together and to learn and hear from your word. Thank you that we can worship corporately. And God, I pray that this, the rest of the time we have together today, God, that your word would do what it's set out to do, that it would transform us, making us more like you. Because that's our heart, God. I pray that our hearts would be good soil today. Glorify yourself in this time and in our lives. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. <clears throat> Forgive me that my voice is being a little weird today, but I was doing it first service too, but we'll get through it. Sometimes it get a little scratchy. Uh, so this verse in Galatians 5, it actually really speaks to me um, because I know, like I said, I know Paul's rebuking the church in Galatia for, uh, for their legalism, but either way, it still feels like he's actually talking to me in this verse. I mean, how many of you would agree with me that it's sometimes we can get some traction in our faith we feel like we're getting some momentum in our faith. We feel like we're, you know, we're doing good and we're, uh, we are really pretty committed to Jesus and things are going well. And then as Paul said, someone cut in front of you. and Cut in front of you and, and stopped you from running the race or caused you to veer off the path 
that God has for you. I feel like it happens to us all the time, right? Because it's kind of the world we live in. We live in a fallen world, so there's gonna constantly be things that are going to be cutting in on us, trying to keep us from running that path the way we'd want to. Sometimes it's ourselves causing ourselves to get on the path. But then he goes on to say that a little yeast works its way through the whole dough. And listen, this is not about condemnation for us, right? Paul's not trying to condemn people. I'm not trying to condemn you or me today. What we're doing is if we really want to be uh, all in on Jesus, we have to recognize our tendencies because when we recognize those, it actually equips us to not fall into the traps that are so easily set for us. So it's not about condemning us or saying you're not doing good enough, but it's about us recognizing and being equipped to live the life that God has called us to live. And so he says that a little yeast works its, all, its way through the entire loaf of bread. And this is a really profound statement because what he's saying here is it's, it's not really necessarily for most of us as Christians, it's not the big things, quote unquote, the big things that can derail us or cut in front of us or get us off the path, right? If you've been doing this life of faith for a while, you probably are able to avoid the big things that most of us would see as big things in our life, but it's those little things. You see, yeast is a very little thing. I don't do any baking. My version of baking is to sit in the kitchen while Joy bakes and talking to her, maybe running to the pantry and getting her something. Uh, but I, I did research enough to know that when you bake a loaf of bread and you make it from scratch, that yeast is actually the smallest or the second smallest amount of any ingredient in that whole loaf of bread. So it's a small thing. And so for Paul to say yeast instead of like flour, because flour is the main ingredient, right? He says yeast because what he's telling us is that, listen, I know you know about the big things, those things that are obvious that can derail us. What you need to be aware of is the little things because those are the things that can actually really cause trouble in your life. In Song of Solomon, he talks about the fact that the little foxes spoil the vine. You probably heard that verse. And that, he's talking about relationship in that verse, but it, it crosses over into every area of our life because if you're owner of a vineyard, you're gonna put up fences and things to keep the big animals out from eating all your grapes. But it's those little foxes that can squirt under the fence. They can get through the littlest holes and can still get in there and they can actually do a lot of damage. He's saying the little foxes spoil the vine, the little yeast works its way through the whole dough. This is a profound statement that's a warning to us, church, telling us, hey, be aware. Be aware of what is going on so that you do not fall into the traps. Because even though the yeast is a little ingredient, it has a big impact. It does in bread and it does in our life. You know, overwhelmingly, almost every time yeast is mentioned or leaven is mentioned in the Bible, it's an evil thing, it's a negative thing. So when we're talking about yeast today, we're not talking about good little things that come into our life, we're talking about the things that can hinder us and cause us to, be, to not be all in on Jesus. You see, it takes time for yeast to work through the dough. I know enough to know that if you have a loaf of bread and you put yeast in it, you gotta let it sit for a while and let it rise. It takes a minute. It doesn't happen overnight, which again, I think it's very profound when you look at this verse because I think what Paul's telling us here is that, you know what, if you're passionate about Jesus and you're living for Jesus and you're loving Jesus and you're living your life and you're living your faith and you're doing well, overwhelmingly, it's very, very rare for someone in that state to the next day completely reject Jesus. Then I'm walking away. No, it's not good, I'm done. What happens is we slowly erode over time. As we allow things into our life, we just erode slowly. And like yeast, which slowly works its way through the whole loaf of bread until that bread rises. And it can do the same thing in our life. You know, I, uh, 
I want to look at it from just a, a, another angle for just a minute to give us another perspective on what this looks like because the Bible talks a lot about the journey of faith being like walking a path. It's, it's dozens of times in the scripture where it talks about this life of faith is like a path that we walk on or a, a road that we walk on. In fact, even in my text verse, Paul says, who cut in on you? You were running a good race. You were on a path. You were on a track running a good race and somebody cut in. So even in that, it shows it. But there's a couple other verses that are probably a little more famous referring to this Christian life as a path. Probably the most famous is probably out of Psalm 119, verse 105, that most of us know can recite from memory. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. This is all about following God. This is as we follow and live for God, his word is a lamp for our feet and a light for the path of this journey that we are on. Psalm 23 probably one of the most famous chapter in all the Bible. It's written from the perspective of a sheep, saying the Lord is my shepherd, right? And in verse three, it says, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I love this verse because this shows the heart of God, that he's guiding me in these paths of righteousness, of this Christian life, this faith walk that I'm on. He's guiding me, and it is for my good, but it's also for his name's sake. That's exciting. That he's not just doing, it's not just based on his love for me, which is enough. It's also based on the fact that it's for him too. Because you know, he's about his glory even more than he is about his love for us. And so that's, a, that's another reference to us living this life on a path. And then of course, Jesus in Matthew 7, in verse 14, he says, small is the gate and narrow the road or the path that leads to life and only a few find it. There is a path that we walk on that leads to eternal life. And so it's referenced over and over and over again that this walk is about a path. And here's the thing we need to remember, church, that just because we get on the path doesn't mean we can't veer off of it. You're not guaranteed to stay on that path. Now, we have eternal security. We're not losing our salvation every time we mess up. But this life, this salvation is a journey. It's a life. It's a, it's a lifestyle that we live. And so we can actually get off the path. And I'll be honest with you, I wish that this faith walk was more like a railroad. That would be beautiful. If it was like, well, we're a train, and once we get on the track, we're pretty much on it. You know, when a train gets on a railroad track, it, it wants to stay on the track, right? The conductor doesn't have a steering wheel up there making sure he steers it so it doesn't get off track. It follows the rail and goes along, and it takes a cataclysmic event to get that train off the track. That would be beautiful if, if that was the case. Unfortunately, there weren't trains back in that day, so that couldn't have been the case, but... Uh, it would have been nice if that's really what this faith walk was about, but it's not. It's actually a path. It's actually something that we have to be determined in our mind and in our heart and in our life that we're gonna stay on that path. And if you can't actually veer off the path, if you're one of those that might, maybe you've been taught, like, you know, once you're saved, that's it, man. It's, you're good to go forever. Whatever you do from there on out is just whatever you're gonna do until you get to heaven. If, if, it's, if it's impossible to get off the path, then why would the scripture tell us that his word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path? Why do we need a light? if we can't get off of it? Why does he say that he guides me in paths of righteousness? I don't need a guide if I can't get off the path. So it's obvious that it is, a, it is something that we have to be aware of. And this is, a, this is a parallel of yeast in our life. That yeast comes into our life and it works its way through the dough and it affects our life in a negative way. It's a mindset that we have to have in our life to live for him. So what is the leaven that keeps us from being all in? What's the leaven in your life that keeps you 
from being all in on Jesus or, or is constantly that little thing that's, that's trying to get you off the path. Because you know, most of us on some level want to be all in. We'd like to be. It's a, it's a good concept and on a Sunday morning, it sounds really great. And if you love Jesus and the Holy Spirit's dwelling in you, the Spirit is drawing you to live all in for him. But there's just always things that are getting in the way, isn't there? And listen, this is not a, a thing of like, I, I don't want you to think I'm talking about works. We are saved by grace through faith, period. But unless God takes you to heaven the moment you get saved, there's a, there's a salvation journey that we're walking on. Today is the day of your salvation. We're, the Bible says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're to live this life. We have to live it in such a way that, that shows, that verifies that we really are saved. And, you know, I, I, I kind of liken this whole thing about being all in on Jesus, I kind of liken it to exercise. You know, we all know it's good for us. We all know that it's gonna be helpful if we can do it. You know, you know it's good for your heart, it's good for your lungs, it's good for your mind, it's good for your looks, if you do it enough. But how many of us have thought about exercise and we look in the mirror and go, eh, I don't look that bad, right? <laughs> I've done it, you know? I mean, I wish I looked better, but I can live with this. And we do it spiritually, where we don't go all in. We know it's a, it's a good thing and it's something we should do and we would be better for it, but we think, eh, I'm doing okay. All the while, our spiritual arteries are getting clogged. Because see, there's a the thing about exercise that some of the advantage of exercise is stuff you can't see. There's the advantage of being all in on Jesus that you can't see either. It's just a matter of trusting him. It's a matter of saying, I might not see the fruit, I might not get everything I want because I fully am in on him, but I know that it's good for my spirit. It's good for my life. It's the best thing for me. And it's what God has called us to. So today, quickly, I wanna give you the five C's of yeast, or leaven, in our life. These are, it's not an exhaustive list, but this is a list that I feel like the Lord gave me. In fact, I actually had about nine or 10 of them, but uh, these are the top five that I think we're probably all prone to most of these in our life. And I want you to be thinking and maybe taking notes about these and maybe talk it over with a spouse or a friend later today, like which ones you're, you think you might be dealing with the most. Because again, we raise awareness so that we can be equipped to deal with the yeast that comes into our life. That's why we do it, okay? The first one is complacency. Now this is a very dangerous noun because it's very subtle, but it has very strong implications. Just like yeast, yeast is subtle, but you put it in the loaf of bread, it completely changes that loaf, right? It's very subtle, but it has major implications in our life. And it's dangerous because it feels comfortable to be complacent. It's a bad word in church, but it does feel comfortable, right? And it's something we don't always notice in our own life. See, I can see your complacency all day. I can see every, every shortcoming, especially if I know you well, I can see yours all day, but it's hard for me to see my own because I like being comfortable in my complacency. The definition of complacency is a feeling of security, often while unaware of potential danger. How great of a definition is that when we look at it, complacency in our spiritual life? A feeling of, insecure, of security, often while unaware of potential danger. <clears throat> Nowhere is this more applicable than in our faith. When we become complacent, we're feeling secure because we're okay, but there's really potential danger. The enemy of your soul is always looking for ways into affecting your life. And I can tell you the enemy's plan for your life thrives when we are complacent. 
it thrives. He loves, loves, loves complacent Christians where we're just content to take whatever kind of just comes away in life. There's the, there's the thought that, you know, well, there's always tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll be more committed tomorrow, you know? There's a lot of football on today. I'll be more committed tomorrow. Or the idea that, you know, I'm just not wired to be a real fanatic, you know, but I am a good person. And so I'm just gonna be kind of, I'm gonna do enough to get by. When God would say he wants us to be all in. Complacency is not a harmless struggle in our life. It's not harmless. In fact, the writer of Proverbs tells us very clearly, it's actually kind of a scary verse. In, in Proverbs 1.32, it says, the complacency of fools will destroy them. The complacency of fools will destroy them. Complacency in your faith makes you foolish in your faith. Now again, I'm not pointing fingers because it's something we all have to deal with in our life, right? We all have to encounter this. And see, most of us didn't start off in our faith complacent, right? If you can remember back to when you first gave your life to Jesus and you really felt him do a work in your heart and you know you got saved and you, things were just different, you just loved God, you really wanted to please him, you wanted to serve him, and you were passionate. But then over time, it kind of maybe has eroded to where you become complacent. That's yeast. That's why Paul says, watch out for yeast because it just take, it goes slowly. You know, I remember when I first just gave my life to Jesus and I was passionate about God and it changed everything for me. And me and some of my friends would go over to this family's house in our church on Monday nights and watch Monday night football. It's kind of a tradition we had. They'd open up their home and we'd come in and watch football. And once I really gave my heart to Jesus, everything changed. Like I'd go over there still on Monday nights, but I would hijack the night. <laughs> I would start talking about Jesus. And I'd start questioning my friends about you know, if they understand what the cross is. I mean, we'd have these deep conversations and next thing we knew the game was over and we didn't even know who won. Because I was just, I was so excited, so passionate. And I, you know, I think it encouraged them, probably annoyed some of them, but, uh, but that's what happens when we first, you know, we, we can be like that and then you start to notice over time it can kind of erode to where you're kind of like, you know, you just become complacent. You don't realize the dangers that we have in our life. This isn't just for lazy people who don't care. Complacency doesn't just mean you're lazy. For some of us, it's just because we've become weary in our faith. You know, weariness in your faith is a very real thing. It's a very, very real thing. And it's not anything to be ashamed of if you are weary in your faith. In fact, Paul encourages us because he knows that there's going to be weariness in faith. In Galatians 6, he says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, the first part of that verse is one of the best verses in all the Bible. Don't become weary because you will reap. But then he has to ruin it by saying, if you don't give up. <laughs> right? It would be nice if he just said, you'll just, don't worry, you're gonna reap. But there's a, there's a part for us to play. If you don't get off the path, if you stay on the path, if you do not give up, you will reap a harvest. What happens if I get off the path? You get back on. It's easy to get off, but it's also easy to get back on. God does not reject us because of mistakes we make or the yeast that we allow into our life. I mean, who doesn't know what it's like to be weary in their faith? I mean, in the last two years, there's been a ton of weariness, not just in this world, but even in our faith, because we wonder what God's up to sometimes. But he says, don't grow weary because you will reap a harvest. Don't become complacent in your faith. You will reap a harvest if you do not give up. Praise God, amen? All right, the second C, and this is one of the biggest causes of complacency, is comparison. 
comparison, comparing our faith, our faith to others. And this is bigger than we know in our life. In fact, Joy and I were talking last night about, she was asking me about my message and I was telling her a little bit about it. And as we're talking about it, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I don't deal with that. Oh, I don't deal with that. And the more we talked, I was like, ugh, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Because <laughs> you start to see it's actually something that is in all of us in some way or another. And it's important that we deal with it. The biggest way we justify not being all in is by telling ourselves that I'm more committed to Jesus than this guy over here. It's one of the ways we justify not being fully committed to our God is by comparing ourselves to others. This is in our nature to compare ourselves. I've been very open about the fact that the first 18 years of my life, I had some form of faith, but it was basically lived by comparing myself to others. That's how I got through because I always lived condemned, feeling bad, and like I wasn't good enough because I didn't really understand grace. And so the, what would give me some reprieve for a moment was to say, well, at least I'm better than him. And he's even older than me. I'm better than this person. And you start comparing yourself, and you know what happens? You start getting really judgmental. You start looking for where, areas where you feel like you can make yourself feel better because that's exactly what comparison does. But that is a yeast in our life that will work its way in and will cause you to be this judgmental, hateful, unloving person. You know, gossip is rooted in comparison. That's the root of it. You gossip about people that you're comparing yourself to because if you can tear them down, it makes you feel better about yourself. I mean, think about it. You don't ever, you very seldom will you find someone gossip about someone that they really genuinely love and have a heart for. Very rarely. I would never in a million years gossip or think to gossip about my wife, no matter what her shortcomings are because I'm rooting for her. I'm not comparing myself to her, I'm rooting for her. Plus, she would kill me. <laughs> you, don't, you don't gossip about your spouse, you don't gossip about your kids. I'm their biggest cheerleader, why would I gossip to someone to tear my kids down? The people you gossip about are the ones you're comparing yourself to, wanting to make yourself feel better. Oh, I gossip about somebody that's, you know, another pastor, oh, buddy, let's go. Or somebody else at your workplace, a coworker of yours, or a cousin, or a sibling or somebody in your life that you just always are comparing yourself to, they're the ones you're gonna tear down because it makes you feel better. That is yeast in our life. And it keeps us off the path. Because see, the path of God for us isn't about comparing ourselves to others, it's about surrendering ourselves, surrendering ourselves to him. That's what the plan is for God, not to compare. And we could easily gloss over and think, it's not that big of a deal, you know, that I compare myself. It's not that big a deal. It is, and it is like a yeast that wants to work into your spirit and affect your whole body. Let me tell you, I can tell you guys, as a pastor of a church, there are constantly, I mean on the daily, comparisons being made between us and other churches, in town, out of town, around the world, all over the place. You're always being compared, and people will always come to you and talk to you about other churches and comparing and saying, oh, can you believe they're doing that? Can you believe this, can you believe that? And I tell you, I shut it down immediately because I know the tendency is to think, oh, okay, well, good, there, there, something happened over there, well, that's good, that makes you feel better about what we're doing. I mean, we're not above that, none of us are above that. You know, I constantly tell myself, I tell our staff all the time, we are not in comp competition with any churches in town. Any church that teaches the name of Jesus and talks about the cross, we are not in competition with them. We're in competition with the mosques and the Hindu temples and the places like that because we wanna bring people from death to life. We are not in competition with churches. We don't compare ourselves to other churches. We do what God has called us to do 
And we can do it in our own individual lives as well, if we're not careful. Because comparison is something we are naturally wired to do it, and it is a killer in the church. You see, we aren't consistent spiritually because we're more concerned about being consistent externally. That's actually really good. I read that today. I didn't come up with it, so I can say it's really good. We are not consistent spiritually because we're more concerned about being consistent externally, about looking the part, comparing ourselves to others. You wanna be consistent spiritually? Stop comparing. Stop comparing. Don't look at anybody else's faith. I mean, obviously we are in community and we look at each other's faith, we encourage each other, but don't use it as a measuring stick to determine where I should be. The measuring stick is right here. We look at the word of God for our, for our standard that we live by because the best, most faithful, faith-filled, godly person you know is falling short every day. So they're never gonna measure up either. So that's not where we get our measuring stick. That's not who we compare ourselves to. We use the word of God for that. Thank the Lord. Uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Don't examine others. Don't compare to others. Examine yourself. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Examine yourselves. Nowhere does it tell us that, hey, make sure your faith looks like your brother's, or at least looks a little better than his. It's about examining our own hearts. And here's the thing, here's what's so important, if you don't get anything else about comparison, get this. What happens if we give in to comparing ourselves to others, we will start to feel like we are worthy of God's grace, that we are worthy of his mercy, that we are worthy of his blessings, that we are worthy of his healing, that we are worthy of his peace, that we are worthy of his favor, and we are not worthy of any of those things, church. If we get what we are worthy of, it's not a good picture. None of us are worthy of any of the blessings of God. The only reason we get it is because of the grace of God, because of what Jesus did for us. But if we start comparing ourselves, because I've been there, I've done it, I start feeling like I deserve your healing, God, because I've done more than these people over here. I deserve your blessing. God, you should bless my finances because I've given more in tithes and offerings than this guy over here. So you should bless me. I should have a bigger house than this guy because I give more. I mean, I've never said that, but that's where we go in our mind, right? You start to feel like, I deserve this, God. I deserve this. You don't want to get what you deserve from God, church. (laughs) None of us want what we deserve from God. We want what we don't deserve. But comparison will cause us to feel like we do. All right, third one, third one is consuming. Being a consumer in the faith is a yeast that can work its way through the whole dough. The consumer mindset is very dangerous in the faith, but it's also easy to do. Because we live in a society, and I'm sure you heard this phrase before, in our society, what they say is the consumer is king, right? We live in a capitalistic society, and the consumer is king in capitalism. And there's a lot of blessings to capitalism but there's a lot of flaws too. There's no sociological or economic plan anywhere on this earth that's perfect, right? So the one we're in makes the consumer, everything is about the consumer. The, the vendors, the, the owners are trying to get you to come and buy their product, to consume their product. To, uh, to consume means to ingest or to receive. So to eat their product or buy their product or need it in your life. And so if the consumer is king, they do everything in their power to get you to buy their product and not the other person's, right? That's a good thing. Competition is good. No doubt about it. But when it comes into our faith, 
it's very dangerous and it's toxic because you can translate that into your faith as well. Well, what has God done for me lately? God, what are you gonna do for me? What are you gonna do for me? Why should I come to faith? What are you gonna do for me, God? You did this 10 years ago, but I haven't seen you do anything tangible in the last while. Why not? What are you doing, God? We can get fixated on wondering when, why God is not doing things in our life and, and being, having this consumer mentality can be very detrimental. And listen, it's easy to even get mixed signals even from the word of God. If you don't really understand the word, it's easy to get mixed signals because you know what? We do ingest, we do receive a lot of things in our faith. We receive grace. We receive faith. We receive peace. We receive salvation. We receive the Holy Spirit. We receive joy. We receive the fruit of the Spirit. We receive all these things, and they're not things that we can earn. We just receive it as the free gift of God, right? So there's an aspect where we can see, well, you know what? The Bible says God does all these things. But that cannot be the thrust of our faith. That cannot be the crux of our faith, that it's about what God can do for me. Because I can tell you today that God already did everything he needs to do for you. He did everything he needs to do. If he doesn't do another thing for me the rest of my life, he's done enough. But I praise him because he's a good father and he still will do good things for me. He continues to bless me. But my heart has always been, I, I always try to keep this in my heart, that God, if you do nothing for me the rest of my life that I can say tangibly that you've done, you've still done enough. You've done more than enough. If all he's given me is salvation, my gosh, what is better than that in this world? To be brought from death to life. I'm not, I don't wanna be a consumer. We are not consumers in the faith. We are contributors. We don't watch in our faith. We engage in our faith. We are not consumers. God's call, his plan for us is not just about what we can get. And here's the big danger of being a consumer is that if, if that's your thing, then, and your whole faith is built on what God can do for you, uh, the, the miracles he's gonna do for you, the healing he's gonna do for you, the financial provision he's gonna give you, the relationships that he's gonna give you, the marriage he's gonna give you, and all these things, if it's just built on those things, and again, do not take me wrong, God does all those things. But if your faith is built on just those things, what happens when the consumables of our faith seem to be elusive? What happens? Because you know, I mean, you know as well as I do, God will heal this guy right here miraculously of you know, cancer, and this guy over here, that loves Jesus just as much will die from cancer. So you, you just never know, God, God's sovereignty does, he does his thing, right? But if it's all built on, you gotta do this, what I think you should do, then when those consumables become elusive, they're not really elusive, but when they seem elusive to our natural eyes, then what happens to our faith? We start to reject God. We start to erode, we're not, we're not even considering being all in, because now I've seen that God's not doing what I want him to do, and if you'll do something for me, then maybe I'll serve you, but until then, gonna kinda keep you at arm's length. That's why we cannot be consumers in our faith, because it doesn't work. We, we believe God for all the miracles, all the supernatural, all the wonderful things he can do. We believe him for those things, but we always preface it by saying, God, but I trust you, no matter what. I will trust my God, because you deserve it, you are worthy of it, and you are faithful. All right, the fourth one, and I gotta move quick. The fourth one is control. Control is yeast in our life. Now listen, I'm not talking about trying to control other people, not being a controlling person, even though that's a real thing. What I'm talking about today is trying to control 
the narrative in your faith, controlling your faith. Not, not really giving the reins to God, but I, kind of asking God to come along with you. Where you're controlling it and, and uh, wanting to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Because what happens is what we, when we want to control, it's about trusting ourselves. Because what we really want, we want what we want more than we want what we need. So we control. And we want God to just kind of be our partner and come along with us. He's the co-pilot, not really the one at the wheel. This is, the, this is one for all of us that I know because, because God is unseen, right? And because there are times that the consumables of our faith seem to be elusive. And so it's the tendency is to want to control in our life. We all have the tendency for that. And some struggle with it more than others, but it's probably the biggest one for all of us, for most of us. And we all on some level want to control our spiritual lives. So here's, here's what control is. Three things control is. Control is safe. I control because I feel safe when I control my faith. I mean, if I let go, who knows what God will do, right? If I really tell him you can have my life, I'm sure I'm gonna be on the next boat to Antarctica, witnessing to the scientists, you know. Who knows what he'll do? If I control it, it's safe. If I say, God, just come along, I'll let you know if I need you, right? Control is familiar. We'll choose familiar even if it's harmful in our life. We'll choose familiar. I like to call them toxic comfort zones. We'll, we'll choose to stay in a situation that is toxic because it's familiar, because we in our nature love familiar. When we ask you to get up and greet somebody you don't know, wouldn't you prefer to just greet somebody like your best friend, right? To really walk up to someone you don't know that's unfamiliar, you do it because, you know, Jessica told me I had to, so I'll do it. But we really would rather just greet the people we know because it's familiar. That's just in our nature. There's nothing wrong with that. We like familiar, and that's what control is. And then control is predictable. I should say control gives the illusion of predictability because predictability is actually a fallacy. If you think predictability is a thing in life, I'd like to introduce you to something called COVID-19, right? We can think, if we control our faith, we can think that my faith is predictable. It's really not. There's nothing in this world that's predictable. It's all built on toothpicks. It's all very fragile. But we can convince ourselves that our life is predictable, but can I tell you today that our faith is not meant to be predictable? Faith that's predictable is not faith, it's control. It's religion, really, is what it is. Predictable faith is just religion. It's masked and prettied up a little bit. We are not designed to control our faith. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, tells us about, talks about control. What do we do with control? He says, trust. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Can I tell you today, I had a revelation of this verse a number of years ago, that this verse is not a command from God. It's not God saying, hey, trust me. You better not lean on your own understanding. You better acknowledge me in all your ways, or else I'm gonna get you. It's not what he's doing. This verse is permission. It is permission to say, hey, guess what? especially if you've been around a little while and you know enough to know that your understanding is pretty much ridiculous, right? I mean, when I was 25, I knew everything. You could have just asked me. I didn't need Google. I'd tell you anything you wanna know. Now I'm 48, I know nothing. It's amazing how that works. When I'm 68, I'll probably know less than nothing. I don't know. But as you grow up and you realize, wow, I really don't know much. And then to read a verse like that in a whole new light, guess what? You don't have to trust yourself. This is God saying, you don't have to do it. How free is that? 
This is even Old Testament. You don't have to trust yourself. You can lean on me and I'll guide you. Here we are talking about a path again. And I will direct your path. It's permission from God to say, "Mm -mm." you don't have to control your life. You don't have to control your faith, but you have to give it to him. You gotta be all in. He doesn't come along for the ride. He wants to be everything for us. I could go on and on about that, but I'm gonna get to the last one here. The last one is contempt. The yeast of contempt in our life. Of everything that keeps us from being all in, this is probably the hardest one to admit. An inability or an unwillingness to really be fully committed to God because we're mad at him. Because we're frustrated about something that he has done or not done in the past. Very hard to admit that you're angry with God. Uh, Very rare is it for me to hear someone say, I'm just angry with God. Sometimes you'll hear it, but you gotta be at a pretty bad, pretty, uh, you you have to have gotten, gone down quite a road to get to that place for a lot of people to say, I'm just really mad at God. Usually people feel hopeless by then. They're just, they're just done, right? Because there's something in us that knows I shouldn't be mad at God. Man, he's done everything for me, right? And listen, it's not about, I'm not standing up here saying, don't ever get mad at God, right? God's not afraid of our emotions, right? but we don't stay there. When we get mad at God, I'll tell you, it's, you're getting off the path, but you need to get back on it. And what happens with contempt, it usually follows this, this path. If, I can, if you'll indulge me for a second, something happens to you that you don't understand, whatever it is. I mean, it could be a health thing, money thing, relation thing, whatever. Something happened that you didn't understand, and the reaction to that is to be disappointed with God. Right, you're disappointed because you thought God would do it, handle it differently. He would do something to help you or help this person in the situation, and you get disappointed for God, with God on behalf of yourself or on behalf of someone else. But if that's allowed to fester, if that's allowed to resonate, what it does is it will eventually breed resentment in our life. This is the yeast that when it stays in, it will breed a, an all-out resentment and a contempt for God in our life. And it, you would be amazed how many Christians actually have contempt for God but they won't admit it because we know, again, it doesn't sound good. Can't say I'm, I, mean, I can say I'm mad at my kids. I mean, that's easy. But say I'm mad at God, that's, that's sacrilegious, isn't it? So we, what we do is we allow this yeast to just kind of brew and continue to spread, and it affects everything about our spiritual life because at the end of the day, we're really mad at God because he didn't do something for us or he did do something, and we didn't want it to be like that, but we're not really willing to admit it. Can I say to you today that our God is good and if you're mad at him, it's best to be open and transparent about it because he knows anyway. <laughs> yeah, no one's ever hurt God's feelings in the history of the world, and no one ever will. But church, we have to get past this thing, and this is a big thing in our society today. We have to get past this idea or this frustration about the fact that life is not fair. Because see, that's what breeds contempt in our life, even for God. God, that's not fair. God, why is that happening? That's not fair, God. And we get mad at God. It didn't have to be anything that affected us directly. I mean, if you pay attention to the news, you probably saw an eight-year-old girl right here in Augusta was gunned down by a drive-by shooting this week, playing in her front yard. Beautiful eight-year-old girl. That's not fair. That's not fair. I I read that uh, on Friday in Nigeria, some militants went into a Christian village, killed 10 people, beheaded them. Three of them were little girls. How's that for fair? Burned down 100 houses just because they were Christians, and they're gonna get away with it. That's not fair. There's girls getting trafficked all over the world all the time. Teenage girls being forced to have 
relations with dozens of men a day. That's not fair. There's, I mean, the list is endless of what's not fair in this world, right? But, and we can be frustrated about those things and we can pray about those things and we can maybe even make a difference in some of these things if God gives us the ability. But we cannot allow those things to cause us to have contempt for our God because life is not fair. And when life is not fair, that should actually draw us to God more, not less. Because he's the only one we can trust when things aren't fair. Because what we do know, if you're in the faith, you do know is that in one day, everything's gonna work itself out. One day, everything is going to be fair from then on, once we get into eternity, where we're going. It'll be fair then. But on this earth, it's not fair, and he's the only one that's trustworthy. He's the only one that we can actually give our lives to and trust and put our lives in his hands because this life definitely is not fair. His worthiness of our commitment to him does not depend on whether or not things are fair, but it should draw us, actually draw us to him even more in our life. Praise God. All right, I'm gonna have you stand with me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray. And I wanna do, do something a little bit different today. Um, you're still welcome to come to the altar as we pray, for sure. But what I wanna do is they're gonna put these five C's up there on the screen. Yep, there they are. All right. And what I want you to do is I'm gonna go down the list and when I call one out, I want you to think about which one of these is most, the biggest challenge in your life, the one that you are probably most susceptible to in your life. And when I call it out, I'd like for you to raise your hand, okay? So, and then we'll go through all five of them. So by the time we're done, everyone will have raised their hand in this building, okay? So nobody's looking at anybody. It's not about shaming anybody. In fact, don't even look around. I won't even look out at you guys to see who's raising their hand for what, okay? I'll tell you right off the bat, control is probably the biggest one for me. And comparison is 1A, okay? Those are ones I could deal with. Joy told me last night, she said, oh, complacency, no question about it. Not that she gets complacent in her faith, but there's, there's certain, when certain things happen, she can feel like she gets frozen sometimes in her faith, right? And that can make you complacent. So your pastor and his wife have shared their struggles in these, so you can feel free to do it too. There's no judging here. I can tell you every, all five of these <laughs> are, are kind of right there wanting to, let their, wanting to bang their way in the door if I let them. So let's go down. It, there's just something about in faith saying, yep, that's the one I struggle with because then I'm gonna pray for us. But we need to recognize so that we can be equipped to deal with it. We recognize it's the first step. And then when we confess it to God, he equips us to help us to deal with it, all right? So the first one, complacency. If that's your hardest one, raise your hand. Complacency, in your faith. This is all about in your faith. Okay, you can put your hands down. Comparison, that's your big one, raise your hand. Okay, put your hand down. Consuming. If you tend to be a consumer in your faith, raise your hand for that one. You can put it down. Control, that's me, I'm with you. This is the A team here. Okay, you can put your hand down. And then contempt. If you struggle with being mad at God or frustrated because of things not being fair in your faith. All right, you can put your hands down. <clears throat> you know, there's many more things too. This is not an exhaustive list. In fact, I, found, I, I thought of three other C's right off the bat when I was doing this, conceit, compromise, complaining. These are all yeast in our lives. 
So I kind of give them an honorable mention, or a dishonorable mention, I should say, today. But I want to pray for us. And, and if, you, if you're comfortable, I would encourage you just to lift your hands. You can even confess it to God quietly or silently if you want to just ask God to help you in this in your life. So let's pray. Just respond to this prayer today. Father God, we thank you today for your faithfulness. We thank you that your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, that when you spotlight things in our life, it is never, ever, ever to condemn us because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Lord, it is to, it is to make us more like you. God, we wanna be more like you. But the yeast that's in our life, the leaven in our life is working hard to keep us away from that. God, we bring this leaven to you today. Lord, for me, it's control, controlling my faith, Lord. I, I bring it to you, God, I repent today. I thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. I thank you that you're faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we bring this leaven to you today. Would you cleanse us today? And God, help us to be more like you. Lord, help us to recognize it. Equip us with your spirit to deal with this in our life so that nothing, 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 nothing would hinder us from being all in on you. We don't want our spiritual arteries to be clogging. God, we wanna have clean, clean veins, living this life passionately for you. Lord, we commit ourselves to you today. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. You are so good, God. We love you, we bless you, we praise your holy name. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Can we can praise God one more time today? Thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Hallelujah.